verses 15 through 23. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come to your word humbly this morning. We seek that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through uh, Pastor Cody this morning, that you would fill him. Lord, help our eyes to see truth. Help our minds to uh, understand the truth and our hearts to receive it. We pray that you would continue to conform us into the image of your son. And we look forward, Lord, to you speaking to our hearts and minds and changing us. Uh, God, help us this morning to fall more in love with Jesus. And Lord, help us to continue to love each other as you've called us to. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So just as a way of reminder, if, if I know we're going through a series, right? We're trying to go through the book of Ephesians. And um, we're wanting to do it as an overview. I know that um, I talked a little bit about this the last couple of weeks, but we're wanting to try and get through it in a timely manner. So we're going to try and take two messages per chapter. I know we could spend all year and every single verse, but uh, we want to see it as a letter. Like I mentioned last week, this was meant to be read in one sitting. And although I think that's a lot, let's spend some time um, looking at the big idea, but at the same time, hopefully not missing the heart behind when Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. If you miss a week, we do post our um, messages as a podcast, both on Apple and Spotify. So um, if, you wanna, if you feel like you missed out and kind of what were they talking about, that's a way to uh, kind of keep in touch with kind of where we're at and everything. Um, so if, if you were with us the last couple of weeks, what we kind of were looking at is, is we spent the first time talking about this identity, that we're given this new identity in Jesus as this community of, of Jesus followers. And last week, we kind of spent the time, the title was that the news is still good. It's that the good news of who God is and what he's done is not just good news for those that don't know Jesus, that it's still good news for us today because that story of God, the gospel, the good news, it's about God. It's not necessarily about us. And so because it's about God, it's good, and we can respond to that. Um, and, and I love it because it's really, because it's about God, it's about his character um, and his work for us on our behalf. And, and we, we want to specify that because so often when we talk about the gospel, it's so often what I need to do and how I need to respond and what do I need to do for God, for God to be pleased with me more or love me more or, or accept me more. And so as we're continuing in this, 
Um, the title of today's is An Unlikely Solution because we see Paul pray for the church in Ephesus. He kind of tells them these things that he's praying for them. And what's, what's interesting isn't what he prays, but what he doesn't pray. And we're going to see that as he's praying for this church, this is a church that he loves dearly, that he's spent more time with than any other church uh, pretty much that we know of in Asia, right? And, and that he spent over almost probably three years with these people. And so we're going to look at kind of his heart and what he asks for them. So I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll jump into it. Father, thank you that you want to be known and that you're going to speak and that, Holy Spirit, you're working. Let your word come alive. Let us see you. Let us know you as, as we see Paul prays uh, for the church here. And so we just uh, pray you'll just go before us in this time. Jesus, thank you. In your name, amen. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. It's for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So he's speaking to these Jesus followers, he's speaking to Christians. And I love that he goes, I've heard of your faith in Jesus, your love for the saints. They have this reputation. And he's like, I'm thankful for you. That's awesome. And then he goes on and he asks them something very interesting. He asks them, he asks of God, his prayer is that you may know God. That you may have this knowledge, this experiential knowledge. And I find that fascinating that his request for them wasn't that they do more, that they, they get to work harder, that they have this ability to do all these things, that they go out and they, they minister and they have these programs and they have these settings, his, his prayer, his request, and he's going to pray this over them, essentially, that they might know God, that the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the wisdom and the revelation necessary would, would have this effect on them, that they might have this knowledge of God. And I was just kind of looking at because he talks about the eyes of your heart being open in a second. And, and this idea of wisdom and revelation is this idea that both the eyes of our mind and the eyes of our heart is illuminated so that we might see God and know him in a new way. And I love that because revelation is necessary. God is in the business of revealing himself. And so that is part of Paul's prayer. But his prayer isn't that God would reveal himself so they would do more. Although that's good, right? But it was that he revealed himself so that he, God, might be known by them. This relational, experiential knowledge. And it reminds me of when I was in Los Angeles, I, I was tasked with doing a lot of counseling. And one of my favorite counseling sessions, which was a ton at the time, was premarital counseling. And my favorite thing about premarital counseling is that first meeting when they're like, we're so alike, right? We're like the same person. You're like, right, check. Um, and I remember, you know, Rachel and I, when we met, we said the same exact thing. And we laugh now because anybody who's been married for a moment was like, wow, we, we're nothing alike, right? <laughs> um, and what's interesting, when you first get married, I mean, if you're anything like, like there's these, any of the differences are almost like obstacles to overcome. You're trying to be, you feel like, 
synergy or, this, or becoming like homogenized is the key to success in marriage rather than, um, so you're always trying to change the person and then you finally realize that's not going to happen. And it's crazy. I mean, Rachel and I were going on, what, 19 years? And um, the longer we've been together, I, I've come to not only in, enjoy our difference, but celebrate it and appreciate it. And it's like more of a love that I have for her because of our differences. Like we wouldn't be the couple that we are if we weren't so different. And my differences, right? And what's interesting is that God chooses to reveal himself to creation in the relationship that he refers to mostly is this idea of a marriage. That this relationship, and in what Rachel and I early on, we talked about his idea is that marriage is this lifelong commitment to get to know the other person. And, and if you think about at the heart of, of what we desire as human beings, whether we're married or not, is this idea to be known, like known, known, and loved. To be known and not rejected. And God is in this business of going, I know you, and I'm going to reveal more about how much I do know you, all your flaws and all your successes, and I love you, and, and God is desiring to be known by his creation. I mean, even in Philippians chapter 3, Paul, as he's talking about all this stuff that he did, and he's trying to show why he's like, he's, he's like I'm going to boast, but it's not going to be awesome, right? And he gets to the end, and he goes, all this stuff that I did, it is rubbish, that I might know God, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, right? Like, I want to know God. And I was thinking about that, and what's crazy to me, and I mentioned this even earlier on in, when I was introducing our time, is that so often the gods of the ancient world, their, their demand was to serve me. It was never to know me. And that's why when you have Jesus coming in and you have these apostles saying, no, the God of the universe wants to be known, they're like, this isn't, it's not like, God is relational and he always has been. From Genesis early on, we see in creation, God's primary interaction with human beings was walking with them and having a conversation with them. If you fast forward, we even see that the idea of creation itself, right? Psalms 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, that God even in making things, put his fingerprints everywhere so that we might, even when we look up at the most amazing, beautiful thing that we can imagine at times, that it's communicating something about God. Structurally, even in the law that he gave Israel, it was this law where human beings can again have relationship with God, and so much of the interaction with God was around a table. Even in the sacrifices often they'd get to partake of. It was coming and feasting and enjoying God. It was this relational component of God wanting to share himself with, with us and us sharing each other and being in community. I mean, even Jesus himself in John chapter 17, 3 through 4 said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That even eternity is that of knowing and enjoying God. And so Paul's prayer makes sense. And we're going to see that he has three main specific areas that he's wanting their perspective of God, as, as Paul's talking about their eyes being illuminated, to see differently, their perspective to change. So in verse 18, it says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, illuminated, that you might know, the first thing here, the hope to which you have been called a greater perspective of the hope of God's calling. 
as God desires to be known, right? He enables his spirit, and he's wanting our eyes to be open, he, enlightened that we can see, and that's how God, God, I love that. As a pastor, it gives me so much rest knowing that I can't open your eyes. I can't change your heart. I, we can't change each other. I mean, like any, we're talking about marriage, like we figured that one out, right? We can't change our spouse, can't change anybody. Thank God the Holy Spirit's at work in each and every one of us. Thank God that Jesus is the only one that can change people. And we can rest in that. And sometimes it's frustrating because we want the process to be faster, but thank God he's patient with us in our process, right? And so he wants to know, first off, the hope of his calling. And I love how this really deals, as Paul's praying, he's wanting them to remember back, right? It's dealing with something in the past, the hope of this calling. And, and the calling really was that to following Jesus. People are called to a lot of things, but ultimately our first calling, and that is the, as we're following Jesus, as we're responding to his invitation, that's our first calling as, as human beings and the hope that comes with it. And I think that that's an interesting aspect because our calling, when, God's, when we've responded to goodness and glory of God and say, I want to follow you, it should produce hope. And I think for so many people, it doesn't produce hope. It produces bondage, like, man, like, burden, like, this is hard, and, like, how am I supposed to do, like, there's a hope. First Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may the whole spirit and the soul and the body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is different than a lot of what I heard growing up. And it wasn't like it was malicious. It was just this idea that I had to get myself better. I had to be better and I had to do better. And if I didn't, then God was mad. God was disappointed. And I realized early on that I am not faithful at this. In verses like this, it, ch it changes things because it says, he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. There's rest in that. And so, Paul is praying that the knowledge of God, that, that they'll, the eyes of their heart will be enlightened so they may know the hope of their calling. 1 John 3, 2-3, I share this all the time because I, it has to. I just have to. It says, Beloved, we are children of God now. Right? Giving us our identity. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. Right? So here we are in this space where we know we're children of God, but yet we're not complete. We're in this all between the already and the not yet. And here we live. He's like, but when he appears, talking about Jesus, we'll see him as he is. And we'll be made like him. This idea that the more we see Jesus, the more we're made like him. And right now, in this earthly setting, it's a little bit every day. A little bit more like Jesus. We see him a little bit more. We're made a little bit more like him. He says, but he who has this hope, what hope? The hope of being made more like Jesus. He who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. The hope that one day I'm going to be made like Jesus, one day I'm going to see him as he is, one day I'm going to be changed, that hope has a purifying effect on me and on you. And Paul is praying that their 
eyes might be enlightened, the eyes of the heart may be enlightened, that they may know the hope of the calling. And then he goes on, still in verse 18, and he says, and that you might, so you might know the hope of the calling, what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints so they might have a greater perspective of the riches of God's inheritance. Inheritance always speaks to the future, right? This idea of what we're going to get later, what's coming, right? So he's dealing with this idea of, of that you have a future. But here's what's cool about this inheritance. Psalms, David says it in 73 of Psalms, verse 25 to 25 through 26. Whom I have high of heaven but you, and there's nothing on the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think what's interesting is that so often in conversations with people that I have, there's this idea that I, I, I follow God to get something. If I do this, then God's going to give me this. I'll have success, and I'll have money maybe, or I'll have health. And, and the mentality with that, it, it runs into a lot of problems, especially when we suffer, right? Because it's like, God, if I'm supposed to get good things when I'm doing good, what about when I'm in pain, right? Like, um, but what we find repeatedly over in Scripture over and over again is this idea that, that what we get is God. He gives him, us himself, his goodness and his love and his mercy and his, himself. We get God. The ultimate satisfaction to every longing of the human heart, I would say, and Scripture would say, is found in Jesus. And this really should bring joy and should bring satisfaction. And, and it makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author, who knows who the author is, was at the very end was talking about this that we might run this race right that looking to the author and the finish of our faith right we might run with endurance the joy that and and he says and he kind of changes gears and I'm just going to read it the very end chapter twelve verse two says looking unto Jesus the author and the founder and perfecter of your faith who right he so he's talking about this race he's sort of surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses these faithful ones, right, that were trusted God. He said, and then he changes gears. As we're running, we need to look to Jesus. And he said, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's beautiful about that verse is that he, he's comparing this race that we're running to this race that Jesus ran and how we're to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, but he says, for the joy that was set before him, he ran. But he also endured this cross and this suffering, despising the shame, and he finished it, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know what that joy is? It's you. It's me. It's knowing Jesus, the, the joy knowing that, one, that, he, that doing this, enduring this, we would be with him. We brought the Father, we brought him joy. We brought Jesus joy. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Us. 
So not only do we get God, but God gets us and he wants us. He wants us. And I know that sometimes, initially, for some of us when we hear that, there's like, there's no way. He doesn't want me. He puts up with me. Right? He doesn't want me. He does. You bring him joy. That's why he endured the, sh- the cross, despising the shame. That's why he finished the race. Which leads us to our last thing that he's asking. Verse 19. So he's asking for the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance for all the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him the head of over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. A greater perspective in the greatness of God's power power towards us, right? This deals with the present, right? We talked about the past and the future, but this deals with the present, that the power of God is on display in Jesus, and it is given to us. And we see the, this power displayed, and the very first thing he says is in the resurrection, right? Whom he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus conquered sin and death. And why that's a big deal is because everything else in this world, everyone says when it comes to sin, you must you must pay. But Jesus paid God's righteous punishment for sin on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. The resurrection means that we're forgiven. That he paid. And as people that have put their trust in Jesus... We have to be reminded of that because so often, if you're anything like me, I get back into that same mentality. Even as a follower of Jesus, I say, man, I screwed up. I need to pay that back. I need to work harder, do more. But then it says what? He ascended, right? He raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. So we have this ascension. Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand. And I love this because the world and everything says you must achieve. You must do. You must be good enough. You must do all these things. But Jesus achieved God's righteous requirements to be in relationship with the Father. Jesus did everything necessary for us. He fulfilled the law perfectly and he sat down signifying that the work is done. It is completed. His last words, right? It is finished from the cross. Those that have received the offer to be in relationship with the Father, those have received what Jesus has done, He literally gives us His righteousness in exchange for our sin. And yes, we screw up. And yes, we don't feel that way. But when God sees us as we're clinging to Jesus, He sees His Son's perfection. We're fully loved and fully accepted only because of Jesus. And so often I hear people, well, then you don't have to do anything? No. 
but you want to do everything. Right? Like, yeah, I don't have to, but man, I want to. Like, because I'm loved and kept by the Father, because I've been made righteous because of Christ, because I've been forgiven, I want to respond and do things from like, and he's been exalted. And he reigns over all creation. And I love how it says, the fullness of him who fills all in and is in all. So as we are understanding this power, what I find fascinating is that the power of God resides in human beings. The church is the only place in the world where God's space meets human space. God chooses to dwell in human beings and use these human beings that are his church, his followers, to change the world. To minister to people. To care for people. This body, as he, as it were called, is on display essentially, and we're, he's using human beings to work. Where before you had to go to a temple, and that's where God's power and presence dwelt in this one room in this temple, and you had to do all this thing to even be in there one time a year, God said, I'm going to rip that down, and I'm going to actually put my presence in people. And they're going to have interaction with other people, and I'm going to minister to other people and care for people and draw creation to myself through human beings. That should give us rest and excitement because it's God doing this work again because he's the only one that changes and he's the only one that transforms. Hopefully, it gives us boldness, right? It gives us boldness knowing that I have been given this Holy Spirit, this power that I can go out and I, and I don't have to worry about doing it all, everything right. I just can just, God, I, I want to be used by you and that can give us a confidence knowing that it is, at the end of the day, it's not even me, right? God's working in me and through me. He's giving me the power to obey. I don't have to fear when I don't live up to that because Jesus has paid. I can confess and repent and, and be back on my way. But it also should bring a peace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 says, because this is really it's a different type of power. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul talking. For my power is made perfect in my weakness. Well, Jesus talking to Paul. Therefore I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The weirdness about this power is it's not on display in strength. It's in, on display in weakness. And it's almost in our weakness when we see that we can't, when we see that we're unable, when we see that I, I have nothing, it's at that time that I get access to this. Because at those moments, I can boldly proclaim that it's not me, man, it's the Lord. I got nothing. I can't do this. Our, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Power comes from trusting, not performing. The power of God comes from trusting, not performing, recognizing that we're not able. This takes the trust off us and places it onto God. He gives us the strength to walk and to do all of these things. And so, that's my prayer for us. That our eyes will be open to see 
our perspective will be changed to see these different aspects of God that we might know him more. We can just know that hope, like really understand the hope of our calling and the richness of the inheritance of the saints and the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And, and, and just like practically, you know I love checklists. I don't want any checklists, but practically, what does that look like? How do we know God more? And I know that this, the answer always is read the Bible, but that's true, actually. No, it's not the only answer. No, how do we respond to that? Like, I want to say, throw this out, like, it takes time, one, okay? Like, we, there's an aspect knowing, like, we want to just get it. But it takes time, just like marriage. It takes time to know somebody. It takes time. That's okay. It takes community. It takes us being around other believers. We experience Jesus from other Christians. That's how it's designed, at least. I know a lot of times those are the people that have hurt us the worst, right? But God's heart is that, we, that he loves on us through others, which is the hardest thing. And it takes, I think, time of, in those spaces of, of solitude, also just prayer. Prayer is something that God has been challenging me with personally, and he's, and he's been really challenging us, me, for us. And so in the next week, you're going to hear some things that we're wanting to start incorporating more. Prayer has been a, a value for, I want it to be a value for our, our, our fellowship here more than it is. And so, but prayer. And I think that the, you know, as um, prayer isn't always this, like coming in with this very structured form. It's just, sometimes it's nothing. And one of the beautiful things about prayer, it says in John chapter, or uh, Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf. Like, it says that we don't even know what to say sometimes. And he, he, it's almost like he's translating the, the deepest longings of our heart. And so that frees us up when we're like, I wonder if I'm praying the right thing. Should I be asking for this? Like, there's never, I don't, I don't think there's anything you could ask for that God wouldn't go, yes. Right? Not like, yes, I'm going to answer that. But like, come to me. We should never feel guilty. Like, I feel like I only go to God when I'm asking things. Fine. Do it. Because we're showing our dependence on him. He, lo- he pleases him to come to me. And yes, we get to know God through Scripture. This is his book to show him. This book is about him. It's his story. What better way to know him through his story? And then we obviously get to know God through being used by him and serving and ministering. And like I've mentioned a lot, we get to know God also through suffering. I think anybody that's experienced suffering at any period of time that's followed Jesus, the closest, it's pain me to say this, but the closest the Lord's ever been has been in the hardest times. His presence has been the nearest, and that, like, I don't think I'm at this point today where I can, like, Lord, bring suffering so I can experience that. <laughs> but I still remember these moments where, like, it was almost like God was tangibly present. His presence was there, and it was in the hardest times. And so, we just close there. Father, thank you.